There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, my name's David Runciman, and this is Past, Present, Future. Today, it's, I think, the third part in my ongoing conversation with Leia Ippi, which has evolved into a conversation about trying to understand democracy. And today, we're going to be talking about democracy and nationalism. Past, Present, Future is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, home of great essays and great essayists. And you can subscribe for a special rate if you just go to lrb.me slash ppf. lrb.me slash ppf. So, Lair, this is a kind of ongoing conversation, but it has these month gaps between it. My memory of one of the places we ended up last time is talking about the possibility of international democracy and why it's so hard for democratic institutions, but also democratic ideas to get traction at the international level. This picks up on that in a way, but we're going to focus particularly on the question of the nation. And I thought maybe we could start with what is often a familiar trope in discussions about democracy, which is the original idea, the classical Greek idea, ancient Athens, seems to be limited by scale. So there is a version of democracy which is citizens genuinely participating in collective decision-making and some element of selection by lot or at random of ordinary people, male citizens of a certain type, but still ordinary people, for offices that have real power. And those two things, it's usually assumed, can only work to a certain scale. And the scale of it is, I often think of roughly the number of people you might get in a football stadium, sort of 50,000 people. And if you think about a football stadium or pop concert or whatever it is, you can sit in a full stadium. There's no way you're going to know everyone there, but you can see them all. And if you go regularly, you will know some of them quite well. And then in certain sports like cricket and baseball, now when there are gaps in the action, there's a thing where the camera will pick out someone in the audience for a sort of 20 seconds so they can do a dance or whatever it is. And that's a bit like the, the randomness. And whenever that person is picked out, it's always very exciting for them. But it's not like being picked at random to be Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. It's kind of, yeah, there are 50,000 people here. It's not the most unlikely thing in the world that the camera would arrive on me, but it is quite exciting. And then the camera moves on. It's that sort of scale. And it has a intimacy to it. And crowds of that size can get really connected to each other. And you can get extraordinary emotion at that level. And the assumption has always been, I think, for most people, that that kind of democracy doesn't scale up. So to start with, we're going to get on to the scale of the nation. But to start with, I'm genuinely curious what you think about this. Democracy understood as that actual participation in collective decision making, plus the possibility that at random, you will be given real responsibility. Do you think that does die once you scale it up to modern levels of national politics? I don't think it does, because I think it depends on how you design institutions. And in principle, there is a way of designing institutions that preserves communication, even at a small scale level within units that are larger. But I think we also have this view of ancient democracy that is maybe not exactly the one that the ancient Greeks themselves had, for example, if you think about the birth of democracy, it was actually inherently unstable as a regime type. So we think of it as something that 
as an ideal. And of course, in the 19th century, when people started talking about democracy, classical Greece was the place where they were looking to revive this idea of collective participation and decision making and caring about the polis. But actually, in the writings of ancient philosophers, democracy is one regime type among many. And it's not there forever. It's uh, unstable because it's compared always to these alternative ways of organizing power. And so you have democracy, but you also have aristocracy, which is the rule of the best. You have oligarchy, which is the rule of the few. And democracy is, as the term, the rule of the demos of the many, as an alternative to oligarchy, with a whole debate that goes with it about the limits of democracy. And there's people like Plato who are actually anti-democrats and because they see it as a form of rule that uh, leads to the emergence of the demagogues and so people who kind of manipulate the masses and manipulate exactly this display of emotions that you were discussing. Or people like Aristotle who are much more sympathetic and say, no, actually, we, when you have a big crowd, you have the wisdom of the crowd. And so, in fact, the wisdom this is of a the football of, crowd. Yeah. <laughs> well, and Aristotle thought that the wisdom of the football crowd has something going for it because it tempers the passions of the individuals in this kind of collective mean that sometimes might be desirable. But for me, it's interesting because we think of it, as I say, as an ideal and as, as an ideal without flaws in many ways. But the way in which it appears in these discussions in ancient Greeks is exactly as a form of government that is unstable and has very much to do with uh, the exercise of power by the people, often as an anti-oligarchic measure. So the idea is that at some point, the you know, when you think about how Plato describes this or Aristotle describes this as one degeneration of one regime type from another, uh, you know, you have the rule of the best, the aristocracy, often the aristocrats get into trouble with each other. And so the rich, the city's rich, become more empowered. And then you have oligarchy. So that's the rule of the wealthy few. And then people become resentful because they think, well, why the few rich rather than the great masses that are deprived and poor? And that you have then a democratic movement. And then a democratic movement has its own issues as well. And so it's interesting that I think it's, it's much less uh, stable and much more fragile. And it was like that for the ancients. I think I've always assumed that it was that fragility and instability which is assumed to be the reason why it doesn't scale up in the sense that when we think about nation-state democracy, the idea of it having that level of instability and baked into it is too dangerous. It feels like if you're talking about not 50,000 people but 50 million people, we want something which is more mechanical and secure and more artificial in a way. And the football crowd, I'm sorry if it's a blokish analogy, and we're sitting in a recording studio which has a whiteboard that has uh, football tactics and Pep's name written on it. I don't understand why we're at the London Review of Books. Nevertheless, the idea of that football crowd is it's wild, right? It's got something about it that's wild. And the randomness, which also in modern democracy seems like a very threatening idea. Like I said, the the kiss cam picks you out and it's exciting, but it's not the most astonishing that ever happened to you. But if someone said you're prime minister for a day, that really would be remarkable. And so it is precisely not that it's this ideal version. It's at that scale, you can do it in this extraordinarily dynamic way, but it's never going to be stable. And what we want from, let's call it nation-state democracy, or what we've come to seem to want, because it is so bureaucratic and mechanical, is something that that level of instability would be profoundly threatening to. But I, I disagree with you that it's about numbers, that the problems, that the limitations are about scale and that they can be reduced to a question of numbers. And that's, so before we go to the kind of modern nation state democracy, maybe if we go back to the, um, to the ancient Greek ideal, even if we stick to your football crowd analogy, not every football crowd is inherently violent and inherently unruly and inherently passionate. It depends on who the people that go to listen to the match are. And, in and it fact, depends on the game as and well. And it depends on the game as well. And so in a way, I don't think there's something about the numbers and about the types of emotion that are essentially like that and never change. It depends very much on levels of education and on how people access this process and what the process brings out and what it doesn't. So one of the criticisms, so one of the reasons I'm always really interested in the kind of platonic criticism of democracy, but one of the criticisms that Socrates make, makes of democracy is that the sophists have the upper hand 
because they don't have a conception of reason. They don't have a conception of the good. They don't have a notion of how you could actually help people articulate themselves better. It's always playing with their emotions and always manipulating them. And that is what makes democracy unstable is the fact that then it leaves open the space for these characters, these demagogues. And philosophically, it's the sophist. Politically, it's the demagogue or the a particular kind of leader that is prone to being tyrannical. And it's really about what kind of arguments are aired in these spaces and what levels of education people have and what competences they have to be more articulate or less articulate and what role philosophers or intellectuals, we might say more generally, play in this debate, whether they have a role that encourages a more wise use of the big uh, participatory mechanisms or whether they just you know, sit there and think, well, it's not going to work or let's try and use it for our own purposes and um, and in some ways access it in a more manipulative way, I guess. But as I say, for me, it's really not about the numbers. There is a, a, a process like that could happen within very, very small scale as well. And sometimes, you know, it happens in even departmental meetings or discussions with colleagues or you see these kinds of dynamics. And sometimes you can have very large numbers, but if you have the right procedures in place, then that's the, those limitations aren't necessarily there. I think I completely agree that, and I'm not trying to suggest there's a sort of cutoff point, like 50,000, 100,000, whatever it is. But it does feel to me like there's a categorical distinction between 50,000 and 50 million. And maybe you can design the institutions to replicate some of that, but you certainly can't replicate all of it. You can't replicate the dynamics of fully participatory, face-to-face, selection-by-lot democracy at that level, probably not even at 5 million, partly because, and I think this is what we're going to actually talk about today, what it means to belong is somewhat different. You are at the nation state scale level, belonging to an abstraction. You can't conceptualize the crowd, the people, the human experience of it. I feel by definition it's passing through at least some institutions that abstract away from your participation to something like, what does it mean to belong to this thing, the nation, which is not something that you will ever experience in the way we've just been talking about. You'll experience it at one remove because someone will articulate a version of it with which you can identify. And so you do get that odd thing with nation states, which is people do have deep identification with their nation. And they do also identify with people chosen at random with sort of celebrities or, you know, with football players or with, you know, there's some terrible international disaster and people genuinely want to know how many British people were involved in it. They don't know these people. It's simply that connection. But it's a connection which has to be mediated by this abstraction, which is we all belong to this thing, which is way bigger than anything we would ever experience directly or collectively or in a participatory way. And that does feel to me categorically different. Yes, I agree with the fact that it is you have to mediate with something and that you mediate with an abstraction. But in a way, that proves my point that it is a construct. So the nation is a, contra- a construct. And I think the nation in the you know, 19th century or whatever, whenever we start thinking that the concept of the nations begins to enter politics, and uh, which coincides incidentally also with the expansion of mass politics, in some ways, it's exactly the kind of construct that is artificial, that is offered by certain elites, precisely to convince people who have very little in common because they are very fragmented. They have these regional differences. Sometimes they don't even have linguistic commonalities because they speak different dialects. And with even when they speak the same dialect, they have such different accents that they don't even understand each other. And the concept of the nation acts as the kind of social glue that is an artificial construct in order to convince people to mobilize at a scale much larger than the one that they were mobilized before when they were only participating or in any way affected by uh, local politics and regional issues to begin to care about something that is a little bit bigger and that offers them a symbolism of belonging that is nothing that they will have ever experienced directly. And that's why we have these 
abstract symbols, you know, the flag or the national anthem, or we identify with particular individuals, but via this collective abstraction. And as I say, for me, that is, that's the moment in which the nation is in some ways progressive. I think it's lost that. Maybe we can talk about that later. But it's interesting that it is progressive precisely because it offers an abstraction to people and because it is the result of a social construct rather than anything that is really found there. And it's a myth-making exercise. And just to be clear, so I heard you saying two things. I'm sure you were saying them because they connect. But you sounded to me a bit like you were saying it's a bit fake. And also that you were saying it is the the vehicle, the genuine vehicle for progressive politics. So presumably some versions of it are more fake than others. Well, I think the whole thing is fake. So it's a construct and it's a story and it's a it's a. But some stories in, are, are truer than others, even if they're all fiction. I don't know. I mean, I think you could pick any story. Yes, of course, every story has an element of truth in it. But ultimately, it is a fiction. And I think the nation is a fiction. Of course, it starts with some true elements that go back to some history or other. But the selection of that history is very limited and very partial. And I don't think there is necessarily a good justification for the reason why we picked this story. It's not that it's closer to the truth than some other story that we could have picked. If we chose another access point, we would come up with a very different story. So I thought I heard you saying that one reason we might have picked it is because it does allow politicians to tell a progressive story, which might have a real deep connection with something that we could call democratic equality, say, and that the nation is not always by any means, but it is sometimes a vehicle for that at this scale. And it's not clear what else would be the vehicle for that at this scale. Well, I think at the point in which the nation became a concept that people were using in in politics and in political theory, it played that role because it enabled to cut class differentials. And in sort of advanced capitalist states, it enabled people to fight against the ancien regime. And so you had the rise of this national bourgeoisie that through the concept of the nation could come up with a discourse of rights and claims. And so these the, the democratic elements of opening up politics and the national element were connected. And 1848, I think, is the moment where these things really become uh, obvious and in some ways a model for European politics more generally. But it is, I think, because politics up to that point is shaped by these hierarchies, first of church and then of class and also difference between dynastic uh, belonging and national belonging is exactly some model of alternative being together that isn't mediated by the crown or by the uh, by a natural hierarchy somehow so it has this progressive function because i think it is uh, it, it is an anti-monarchist function and in the service of opening up politics beyond these entrenched hierarchies of birth or religion one classic example of this the story, the historical story you told of bringing together people who don't speak the same language, can't understand each other, have had none of the same experiences, don't know the other bits of their own country is France. There's a great book by Graham Robb called The Invention of France, which tells the story of the way in which France was constructed from Paris, because my God, in the 19th century, people in Brittany and people in the south of France had nothing in common. But it also partly it partly happens through culture, it partly happens through language, it partly happens through intellectuals or philosophers putting ideas in circulation, and it also happens through war. War is a big part of that story. You've got the parallel version of it happening in Germany, and then in 1871, France and Germany meet in the Franco-Prussian War, which creates something called Germany, and in a way, something called France. And... Again, maybe this is the cliched version and therefore is, is, is too simplistic. But in the ancient version, war, which is integral to politics, was itself a collective participatory activity on the part of the citizens. And even mass mobilization wars in the modern era, even the total war, the First World War, the Second World War, it is still for almost all, not all, but almost all citizens at one remove. And those two things do seem to go together as well, that the nation turns out to be a useful, maybe even a sort of tragically useful vehicle for war at that scale in which you have to mobilize patriotism and loyalty, but you're not doing it by getting all the citizens to fight. And that is central to this, isn't it? Yeah. And I suspect, for example, in the case of the French Revolution, that played a really important role because that's exactly, and I and I suspect this is also where the mobilization of nationalism for war purposes started explicitly. 
but it had to do really with the fact that you had this Republican government that was fighting uh, the Ancien Regime and these states that were not Republican around it and that mobilizes this language of the nation, even though the Vandean peasants were necessarily convinced by the language of the nation that the French revolutionaries were advancing. But that's where you have this beginning of this artificial uh, appealing to the concept. It's also really interesting because I think there is a difference between how the language of the nation is mobilized in the advanced capitalist countries and then in the periphery. I'm thinking about the Balkan experience or Eastern European experience. So in Europe, I think we talked about this last time as well, the state formation of a kind of central state that will then appeal to the concept of a nation to also fight imperial wars outside its borders is the experiences of a limited number of countries. And what you have in the European continent more widely is the collapse of three empires, the Russian, the Habsburg and the Ottoman, each of which will create, uh, as a result of the collapse of which there will be new nation states emerging. And interestingly, all of these nation states adopt as a model the model of nationalism and the concept of nationalism and the justification for the nation that the core of these more advanced, richer, uh, more powerful countries have, which in their case is articulated by their elites. In the case of the countries on the periphery, these sort of smaller countries, it's more of a process of imitation or of trying to see, okay, what were what arguments were the French making when they were trying to defend the nation? And then it comes to them with about a century delay. Well, in some cases, in 1848 is that moment. In others, in the Balkans, for example, it's much later. It's late uh, 19th century, early 20th century, and it continues. And, and in some ways, it's continued also from the breakup of Yugoslavia. There's it's an ongoing effort to remake the nation and to make the nation state with all the tragedies that entails. I want to ask you about the alternative ways of thinking about this. But on that point, so if we jump forward to the 21st century, it is puzzling in a way that it does still have that hold, the idea of the nation. The two things that periodically people say are constructs, serve a purpose at a particular time, but are clearly on the way out, are one, the nation, and two, religion. And yet somehow it never quite happens. Religion has been written off many times, and indeed the nation has been written off many times. And both of them, but let's talk about the nation here, still seem to have something that allows human beings to relate to their own experiences and to each other in a way that alternative models don't supply. And so in the 21st century, this is still a very nationalist world. Yes, it's a construct. Yes, in many ways, it's manipulative, and it is definitely not always a force for good. But there's, isn't there something going on there? It's the durability of the hold that it has on the political imagination. And even in movements, again, these are Western European examples, but movements towards you know, frustration and movements towards independence in Scotland. It's Scottish nationalism. In Catalonia, it's Catalonian nationalism. The breaking up of these big units into smaller units. It still seems to be the idea of the nation that drives it. Now, it could be imitation. It could be because we just our political imaginations just have shrunken over time. Or it could be there's something going on here which gives the idea of the nation a competitive advantage over the rival models. I'm not totally sure what that thing is, but I'm not persuaded that it doesn't have it. No, I I, I think it does, and I know why that is. Oh, you do know what it <laughs> is. <laughs> well, I think it's, it's to do with socialization and the way in which, yes, I agree with you, what the nation offers is this concept of unity and belonging in a world that is marked by conflicts and also by inequalities, by power differentials, by people that are uh, dissatisfied with their position in the world and also often resentful. So the world, if you take it as it is, as such, it's inherently prone to conflict. What the nation does is it kind of tames that conflict. Even in the ideal, if you think about what are the two big ideas when you're thinking about the state and democracy, you have on the one hand the notion of popular sovereignty. So people make laws together and they authorize uh, power to make decisions that feel they feel represents them. And so the Coercion is really central, how we relate to the law and how we relate to coercion and how we relate to rules that are ultimately made by others. But the other really important element, and I think this is the one that uh, when I was talking about socialization for me does the work, is civic education. 
it doesn't need to be exclusive. It doesn't need to be arbitrary. It can be open, but ultimately it acts as a socializing vehicle that closes down that conflict and creates this sense of, okay, but we are, there are these divisions, there are these inequalities. You may be unhappy about your politicians, but ultimately we're all in this together. And of course, again, that's, I think, also a myth and a construct because it's not true that we are in this together and that uh, some people clearly are in it more than others. But ultimately, I think the the way in which culture is transmitted, the way in which art is reproduced, the school system, the use of a language, the whole apparatus of socialization of people from when they're very young children is around this concept of the nation, loosely speaking. Now, it can be a, a, a nation that's, as I say, pluralistic and multicultural, and uh, so in some places it's organized differently but uh, not the same experiences and not the same language and not the same narrative. But ultimately, I think it's a narrative of unity that needs a kind of myth of the past, however that past is made, and that acts as a uniformizing device to, uh, in some ways, eliminate the brutality of the conflicts of everyday politics. And one of the other vehicles for this is newspapers. In the 19th century story of the creation of the nation, newspapers are often treated as a key institution. And they are also something that's always being written off as the age of the newspaper must finally have passed. And I am really struck in 2023 reading British newspapers, how central they still are to the life of the nation and how much of the life of the nation is described and then picked up from the way it is characterised by newspapers. Unlike other media, actually, unlike even TV, I still think that one of the hangovers from the 19th century story is, and I know we're living in a more and more visual world, and so this may, I may be describing something that is passing, but at least for now, it still seems to me true that in the written instance of this civic education, newspapers remain central to it. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And I mean, for a reason which was exactly this coming, this emergence of the public sphere and this moment of intellectual, creating intellectual uniformity for these people who had all very different experiences. And it's connected, I think, to this 19th century emergency of the national public sphere and this notion of the enlightenment as the enlightenment of the people that would finally understand that, you know, there's these larger units that they have frameworks of reference that are bigger than the ones that they think they have and uh, that in some ways also, as I said earlier, enable them to detach themselves from both the church on the one hand and the uh, monarchy on the other. There is an alternative Enlightenment tradition, which is that how we should think about our belonging is to something wider than the nation. And the word that's often associated with this, I don't. I think it's an off-putting word, and I'm, I'm sure there's, I think it would have done better if it had a better label, but that's maybe a separate, separate issue is cosmopolitanism, sometimes called cosmopolitan democracy. It goes back to the start of this modern story. So if the French Revolution is the birth of the nation and the nation forged in war, there was at the same time philosophers like Kant, but by no means only Kant, the airing of another way of thinking about this, which tries to get beyond it, partly because there is a recognition of how limited that is relative to the higher ideals of democracy and equality and indeed what progress might look like. And the cosmopolitan ideal has never gone away, but it's never, you're going to tell me I'm wrong, I think, it's never really gained much traction. Yeah, I mean, it never had a particularly good press. I would I would trace the lineage from even before this modern period. So, you know, the term comes from ancient Greek yeah. and it was Diogenes the Cynic who first spoke of being a cosmopolitan. And of course, in his case, it was uh, a character. He was a character that everyone was joking about because if you can imagine in the Greek polis where everyone had this really strong attachment to the polis, this was someone who said, well, I don't belong to the polis. Every everyone thought he was a fool. And it's the guy who walks he, into the middle of the exactly. football pitch and says... <laughs> Exactly. You're the idiot. <laughs> exactly. And everyone thought, no, you're the idiot. So and uh, and in his case, there was this really this element of cynicism, which was exactly connected to the cynical tradition, because he went around saying every every country is the same to me. Every person is the same to me. I don't care about belonging and to be a cosmopolitan in that 
sense meant to be a citizen of nowhere, but being a citizen of nowhere meant you just weren't as a Greek. I mean, for the Greeks, it was inconceivable to be a citizen of nowhere. Um, so I think this tradition is really interesting. And it, get, it gets picked up in the Enlightenment by, in particular, the French Enlightenment, where people, Rousseau also shared this idea that you can't be a cosmopolitan, that to be a cosmopolitan is not to be a good citizen. And there was a kind of hostility towards this concept. But then I think it begins to recover a more positive use, the term begins to recover a more positive use, where people start thinking, well, these nations, these patria, they all are also limited because the world ultimately has shared problems. And this is where cosmopolitanism, I think, begins to become more of a political concept from this moral concept of I'm not a citizen of a very individual moral concept of I'm not a citizen of any country to being a way of talking about a shared world in which people have common problems, even though they belong to different nations, because it's a world of globalization, it's a world of traveling. This was already in the 18th century, a world of traveling, a world of discovery of other cultures, where a kind of spirit of openness to these other cultures is necessary and and required to be able to interact with them in respectful ways. This, again, connects to experiences of colonialism. And although a lot of people talk about the Enlightenment as now these days as the colonial uh, theory and the theory with this problematic colonial power, It's actually also a a culture where there is a lot of concern about how do you mediate encounters with other parts of the world from the European core. And in fact, I think where at its most progressive use, cosmopolitanism, the concept of cosmopolitanism, is the concept that philosophers invoke to try and talk about respectful interaction with other countries that are at risk of being colonized and occupied. So in Kant's case, it's connected to this idea of cosmopolitan right, which is the right to be uh, received in other countries, but to be also treating them respectfully. So the right to hospitality And we now apply it to migration, to discussions around how should foreigners be uh, relating to each other beyond their nation states. And is there a framework of reference for humanity that goes beyond the nation state? But actually, when this in the Enlightenment, when this concept becomes more political, it's it becomes more political because it's a way of talking about colonialism to say, look, don't go there and occupy and take the resources and plunder. And you have a right to be received as a visitor, but you don't have a right to settle and you don't have the right to appropriate resources. And so it's used in this very anti-colonial, anti-imperial language of, in some ways, empowerment of vulnerable people who are at risk of being uh, subjected to this including the language of the nation, actually, for populations that didn't have this development, that didn't have this same history. So I think, just go back to where we started, you were saying it it never had much traction. It never had much traction constructively, but I think it played a role critically, and it was really important at particular junctures, especially in this tradition of the Enlightenment, of discovery, as I say, of the world in general, and of discovery of a critical perspective on that world. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. It has a critical role and it's a it's a way of saying don't do that. That was how you put it. You know, just don't do that, right? You know, you, you it, and it's gotta do as you would be done by quality to it. There's a, a golden rule element to it. But it's still a challenge then to cash it out in the language of democracy. So the phrase cosmopolitan democracy, which is quite an academic term. You'll hear it in academic circles. You won't hear it much outside. But it's it's a really important idea. And it does relate to things that really matter, including borders, migration, but also how you coexist, how we coexist in a world that is one that is under threat from our collective behavior. But to make it a democratic ideal. So there are elements of democracy that come into including what you just said. You know, there's an idea of democracy, which is Democratic equality cannot be consistent with some people being colonized by other people or being treated in that way. And in ancient Greek democracy, there were many people who were treated that way, slaves, women, children, foreigners, all the rest, but they were 
understood to be outside the democracy. If this is an actual democracy, you can't treat the people in the democracy in that way. And the cosmopolitan ideal would suggest that this can at least transcend national boundaries and it can transcend borders. And it's possible for human beings to think about other large groups of human beings in that way. But it's still quite challenging to describe a version of democracy that goes beyond saying, don't do this, don't do that. This is going to be my critique of what you're doing to this is what democracy is or even could be. Yeah, but I think the problem there is not with democracy or with cap with uh, cosmopolitanism. You know what I'm going to say. I heard you start to say it. <laughs> it's about capitalism. So the reason this cosmopolitan democracy doesn't work is not there's neither the problem of democracy nor the problem of why the cosmopolitan ideal doesn't work. I think there are uh, theories out there, and I'm really interested in one of them, which is kind of Austro-Marxist take on the problem of the nation and the uh, what happens after multinational empires collapse and what does capitalism do to uniformize these nations and why is it that actually under capitalism you don't get real nationalism you get small nations that are dominated by large nations and they live in this kind of narrative and in this myth where they think they are developing as nations but actually they're not developing as nations they're just developing as nations that follow the model of the larger nations and generally the kind of homogenizing imperatives of capital. So I think uh, the interesting thing about cosmopolitanism and there are ways of just going back to the criticism so that we don't get to go into many directions. And then maybe we can talk about the Austro-Marxists some other time. I do want to time. talk about the Austro-Marxists. Maybe not today, but <laughs> we I, can talk about I have got the, something to exactly, say. Co cosmopolitan socialist, multinational democracy for the world. I think that in the case of the criticism of cosmopolitanism, there are ways of presenting the theory that are, I think, the ones that are less charitable to the theory, which are to say cosmopolitanism suppresses national attachment. And so it's about coming up with identities that aren't these national identities. But there are also theories that acknowledge that historically nations play and have played an important role. And the question is coming up with a conception of the world that is cosmopolitan in that it recognizes a framework of respectful interaction and uh, equalities between nations. And the argument there is that exactly that's what you can't have under capitalism because these nations don't each have equal power. They are generally controlled and dominated and subordinated by the larger nations. So in a way, one might make the alternative argument, which is to say, with cosmopolitanism, you get real national development, but within a global framework of more respectful interaction between the nations. And for that, you don't need to suppress nationalism. You just need to understand that you, you can have a nationalism that is constrained by cosmopolitan ideas of equality between nations. Some people would call this internationalism. I think cosmopolitan is a bit more robust and a richer understanding. But yeah, I don't think there's an inherent hostility or incompatibility between the two. And I've been talking as though there were some particular affinity between democracy and nationalism. But of course, nationalism assumes lots of forms and many of them are not democratic. And it was true when the Austro-Marxists were writing that one of the things that they were preoccupied with was the way that the Russian state and the Russian empire, so Poland, this is one of the things they were interested in, right, that Polish development, which you might expect to follow a particular model, actually Poland as a nation developed more under the shadow of the Russian empire than the bit that was more ostensibly independent because that's one of the things that nationalism can become. It can just become a kind of mirror of empire. And you see that with the Chinese empire. It is an empire today, right? The Chinese state is a deeply nationalistic state. And indeed, many of the techniques that are being used would be recognized by state builders and nation builders in the 19th century to cement now on a scale that goes beyond anything in the 19th century that someone could have conceived unless they were thinking of China. We're talking about a billion people, but you see it in India too. In India is the so-called democratic version. China is ostensibly the non-democratic version, but you definitely see both that 19th century set of techniques being played out to create loyalty on that scale. But also in the international arena, you see this problem of replication so that the, the smaller nations end up repeating the pattern of the dominant nation in the name of national independence. And I completely agree with you, I think, 
that is just fake independence. Yeah, and I think there is also, I mean, the very models of the nation and the kinds of myths of the nation that we were talking about, they're not all the same. So there are more forward-looking conceptions of the nation and there are, we usually call them civic nationalism, and there are more backward-looking organic unity and much more exclusionary conceptions of the nation that are more ethno-national and that usually also result in suppression of democracy when it comes with recognition of difference and giving claims to other groups and with effort to create a kind of homogeneous political community that excludes. And I think that was a model of the nation that would have been at the center of fascism, for example, in the uh, 20s and 30s, and of course, later on as well. So I think the, the story of the nation is, uh, including the story of the making of the nation, is one that can go in different directions, depending on the politics of those whose narrative it serves. And that narrative is also itself can be subject to moral scrutiny. I want to ask you one more question about cosmopolitan and then one question about another alternative. So one thing that the, the ancient and the modern, whatever differences there are between them, versions of democracy have in common, whether it's the 50,000 or the 50 million version, not saying that there's a scale here, but those are different. They seem to require and engender a sense of loyalty. And loyalty is one of the things that you need for a democracy to function. You need a sense of belonging and loyalty to something, which is the thing that can then be governed in this way. And also both the smaller and the larger version really do police their boundaries. Uh, in the smaller version, that includes excluding all the people who won't fit within that community, not just literal borders, but internal borders. And we still have quite a lot of that. But then in the modern version, quite a lot of literal border policing, still get it in the 21st century. We're recording this on a day in which the British government has just swapped out its Home Secretary and the new Home Secretary has said, like the previous one, my priority is stopping the boats. Can cosmopolitan democracy deliver loyalty in the absence of those boundaries and borders? Yes, because the problem aren't borders and boundaries as such. The problem is the asymmetric movement of one part of the world towards another part of the world, which has is itself created by asymmetries of wealth and power between these parts of the world. So if you have, nobody worries about migration between the United States and Canada or about Brits going to Australia and Australians coming to the United Kingdom. Not much, but, but I don't less. think, you I don't know, think it's, none, but. it's not, I don't think it's, a, it's not the kind of thing that would drive political debate and that would lead a home secretary to resign and another home secretary to come. So I don't think it would be a big political issue. I think when the movement is reciprocal and goes in all kinds of directions, it's just natural freedom of movement. The problem is when the question of freedom of movement becomes a question of policing the boundaries of belonging and community membership, that is just a reflection of something else that is going underground, which is not being remedied, which is the fact that you have an international system that has highly asymmetric rules and that delivers for some people and doesn't deliver for others, which makes those for whom it doesn't deliver want to go to the center where it does deliver. So in a way, under a cosmopolitan system, where cosmopolitan socialist system, under which you could actually regulate this in a very different way, where you'd have rules of interaction and uh, rules of engagement and and uh, financial, political, economic, social, cultural membership would all be in some ways more equal and not subject to these power, arbitrary power differentials, the movement of people as such wouldn't be a problem. So migration wouldn't be a problem. And so maybe you'd have boundaries, maybe you wouldn't have them, maybe they would be porous, maybe it would be just you'd need to go somewhere and some state would... Uh, acknowledge that you entered by putting a stamp on some piece, but it really would, there wouldn't be the whole issue. And also there wouldn't be the whole ideology around illegal, non-illegal. How did you come in? Did you come in by boat or did you come by visa? Do you deserve to be in? Do you deserve to be out? Are you a genuine refugee or are you someone who is just an economic migrant? All these, I think, are arbitrary constructs that we use to police ultimately uh, to, to try and resolve a question which cannot be resolved when it's reduced to a question of membership, when it's actually a much larger question that needs a fair international system. But that does then go back to one of the central controversies in the 18th century version of this, which is, is, is this idea an ideal leading towards a world state or not? And there is a version of what you just described, which is, if you think about the United States of America, and I'm nervous of saying this because I don't live there, but movement between the individual states, which has 
lots of political connotations and can be quite fraught. And then there's all sorts of questions about crossing state lines for the purposes of crime and, and prosecution and so on. But nonetheless, relatively speaking, movement within the United States is not subject to that kind of analysis. Is this economic migration? Is, are these people refugees? There's a bit of it. And the language around sanctuary cities produced a weird internal version of that. But it's nothing like the question of the southern border. But that's because the United States of America, it's not a classic 18th century nation state by any means, but it is a state and it is a state on a continental level that replicates some of the things that we would associate with a nation state. Does the world that you describe not require that to be reproduced at the global level? Well, I think we need to distinguish and we haven't really distinguished between the nation and the state. So we've been talking about the nation now. I'm thinking about a world in which nations can flourish and in which the state as something that is much more administrative, coercive to do with law, territorial policing and so on may or may not be there still, depending on how this future world order looks like. So for me, the question of the, the state can be transcended in a way. The nation is uh, also a construct, but I think is a bit more for the reasons that we've been mentioning, more resilient than the state. And it may be that it doesn't need to be transcended, that it just transforms itself naturally and with evolution. The question of whether you need a world state or not, there's a big debate around that. And it really depends. You don't need to have a world state. You can have structures of intersecting authority that are a little bit more like medieval Europe, for example, or where you have, you can have, you know, other ways of organizing institutions that don't involve the central state as we recognize it. And I don't think the state's always been there. It may not always be there. It's itself kind of transient, uh, political and historical phenomenon. So I don't think that when we imagine the future of the nations and the future cosmopolitan order, it will necessarily include the state. Kant, for example, when he made his proposals for perpetual peace and for a world uh, federation of states, he didn't think that you needed a world state. He thought that it was enough to have a basic global order where republics would be able to share and coordinate with each other. And with if there was a framework of equality in place, then you actually didn't need this superimposed further jurisdictional authority like a world state to and so in that case the problems didn't arise and then you know all these discussions about is the nation state like is the world state like the nation state or will it be something very very different we don't really know because we we will find out as we move in a direction for me the question is that this concept has critical potential and the potential that it has is to criticize exactly the unilaterality of the nation states and the kinds of problems to which the focus the excessive focus on the nation state produces in the contemporary world in its combination with capitalism as an economic system and to use that as a way of thinking about future institutions that might lead into a more progressive direction. So Kant didn't think you needed necessarily a world state, but he did think you needed the preconditions for peace. I mean, if not actual perpetual peace, which is probably a consequence and not a requirement of this system, but nonetheless, standing armies had to go, you know, you, these states had to be re reorganized so that they weren't primarily war fighting machines, and they became something else. They still are primarily war fighting machines, most of them. Well, yeah, because... I mean, the precondition the, also seems like the thing that we're trying to achieve. Yeah, but I think the question there is, are they essentially that or contingently that? Well, contingently, but for a long, long time. Yeah, but not forever. So okay, the point is, forever. we're trying to... <laughs> yeah, I agree, so not We're forever. trying to think about, you know, what is... How can we mobilize this concept critically? And what kind of potential vision of a post-state, post-capitalist order can we generate from there? And as I say, the fact that things have been like this for a very long time, and maybe we're now going back to our old debate about realism and idealism in politics. But yeah, this is really an obstacle to thinking about these institutions in a very different way. And in fact, that's exactly what we need to do now. We can't be stopped by that. One more thought of a different kind, and this is probably inside rather than outside existing structures, including of capitalism. But to go back to where we started, just thinking about other alternatives. So there's the cosmopolitan alternative to the nation state as the primary locus of democracy. But democracy is also an idea and an ideal that can happen in lots and lots of different places. You can have democracy in families, you can have democracies clearly in all sorts of local settings. And you can have democracy in the places and the institutions where people work, which are the engines of capitalism. So you can have democracy inside corporations, 
that's another way this could go to say, let's stop always talking about the nation state, always talking about who's going to be the next Home Secretary. And one thing to be said about corporations is that they are on the scale of the ancient city-state. So I was on the train on the way up here, down here, whatever it is, I was thinking, well, what, what corporations have roughly 50,000 employees, the sort of Athenian thing? And I looked up Tesla. So Tesla's too many. It's like 150,000. But the Lloyds Banking Group, that has, according to Google, about 58,000 employees. So you could get them all inside the Arsenal football stadium. So they could all... and you know. Organizations like that do sometimes gather everyone together in some giant conference venue. So it's got that kind of vibe to it. Not everyone's going to know everyone by any means, but lots of people will have very strong personal relationships. There will be very clear hierarchies, but also there'll be quite a lot of opportunities for people at top and bottom to interact. And you could do it, right? You can, in these corporations, have workers on the board who are chosen at random. That that would make sense. You can, in these corporations, have something like collective participatory decision-making. On the whole, the people who run these corporations don't want to do either of those things in a million years, and nor do the people who invest in these corporations want to do them. But you could do it, and and it is recognisably a strong form of democracy. Again, it hasn't happened. It's sort of people have tried it. There's a bit of it here, a bit of it there. But I also feel that that our focus on democracy at the, the level of the nation state ignores the way, not just that towns and local communities can do these funky experimental things with participatory budgeting, but the most important institutions in the modern world, apart from states, which are corporations, could be much more democratic than they are. Yeah, I don't think they could do that under capitalism, though, because you have an imperative, which is to make profit, and you will or will not tolerate internal democracy depending on how business is going. And incidentally, they all I think that also happens with national democracies, actually. There are moments in which democracy flourishes because the economic circumstances are right, and so wealth can be shared more widely. Usually during are, or after a war, Exactly, exactly. And there is moments in which that just can't be done, and so people clamp, and so the elites clamp down on democracy because it's just seen as wasting everyone's time and uh, it's not efficient and it's taking away too many resources and it's, you know, decisions need to be made quickly. This is the logic of emergency as well that we actually experience uh, right now. And I'm sure the same happens with companies as well. And so in that sense, it is quite similar because yes, all of these companies, I also think they have a story of how they came about and there is sure. a kind of shared myth and there is a corporate... There's a foundation uh, myth. There's yeah, there's the a corporate culture. Days, there's like the, the, there's the a founder. Pioneers. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So there is, there is a way of we're doing things around here in this company is like the culture of the company is slightly different from the culture of this other company and you really want to be here rather than there because we're superior in all these dimensions and that is another story of collective myth making that I think serves to tame conflict within those companies but ultimately the myth becomes and is revealed to be more and more a myth especially under constraints and so when there is a crisis when there is a moment where these companies need to perform and they need to at least if they don't chase profit they go bankrupt well they're not going to be very democratic at that point. So that's what I just described is it's more of a fantasy than the cosmopolitan dream. Well, I mean, there, I think for both, in, there is a shared problem in a way in both cases, which is there, there is an imperative, seems to me, which is about profit making, which is an economic imperative that trumps all these other imperatives of democracy, transparency, belonging, nationalism and so on. Except at times of war. Well, when when it is mobilized by elites for the also for the sake of increasing their profits. I mean, wars can be very good for some some people and for some elites and for some businesses, right? So it's not that war is disaster for everyone. It's, it's, it can be very good for certain companies. If you're in the arms making industry, war is great. I don't know whether to say that is a cynical or a realistic or an idealistic note on which to end. Which one is it? I don't know. Well, so we'll we'll continue. <laughs> we'll discover. We'll continue. If you want to hear the earlier instalments of my conversation with Leia, we will tweet the links. Do follow us at PPF Ideas. We also post links to material related to these episodes. Next week, it's episode 11 out of 12 in my series in the history of ideas about the great essays and the great essayists. And I'm going to be talking about Ta-Nehisi Coates' essay, The Case for Reparations, which is about something I've been talking about in this series before already, the history of America and the history of slavery, but it's about more than that as well. 
do please join me for that. And stick with this podcast because Leia and I are going to be talking again. This has been Past, Present, Future, brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. <laughs>